Hello and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behaviour in a practical, fun and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well, what tips do they have for you and I, and I quiz them about how they apply their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfil your potential. Hello, and welcome back to the Potential Psychology Podcast. Or welcome, if this is your first time here, I am super happy that you've joined our little community. In fact, I'm super happy because we've had so many people join the Potential Psychology community of late. Listeners to this little podcast are on the rise with the number of people tuning in rising month on month, which is really exciting. And it's not just here in Australia either. We have regular listeners in the United Kingdom, the United States, New Zealand, as well as France, Canada, Spain, Singapore, India, Thailand, South Africa, Sweden, across the globe, which is just delightful. And we've also had new people join us on the Potential Psychology Facebook page and on Instagram and via our newsletter. It's all been happening so far in 2019. And thank you to you. If that's you, I'm really excited to have you here to help fulfill your potential because that's what we're here for. And today's episode of the podcast is an interesting one. It's a little bit about vulnerability and a little bit about identity and a little bit about being our best selves with a dash of leadership and some ideas about sports and performance. But most of all, it's about courage. And I don't mean running into a burning building to save a child type courage. I mean, being prepared to do things that push you outside of your comfort zone, to really be authentic, to use a kind of overused word at the moment, but to be true to who you are and to be prepared to expose your soft underbelly a little bit. And I've actually been reflecting on this a little in the last few days since my guest Matt Condy and I recorded this interview. And it's because I spend a lot of time at what I describe as the outer edges of my comfort zone pushing myself to do things that are new and things that are scary and that make me feel exposed, like creating a podcast and designing and developing and presenting workshops to big groups and deciding, as I have recently, to run webinars, which I've never done before and I don't know how that's going to go, and recently facing up to some financial decisions or indecision, things that I haven't done, um, and allowing that side of life to get a bit out of control. And this year we'll be building a house, and I've never done that before either. And this operating out of your comfort zone thing is exhausting, and it's sometimes overwhelming, and I often wonder why I do it. And then I realise that it's kind of become a bit of a habit. It's just what I do now. It's where I live. But I realised something else, and And that was that I take a lot of cues from my clients. In recent days, I've sat with coaching clients as they've exposed themselves to me. That sounds wrong, doesn't it? (laughs) As they've shared their vulnerability and grappled with that and they've sought to make life more meaningful, perhaps, or pursue their bucket list goals or change the trajectory of their careers. 
or some of them are stepping up to be leadership roles that feel enormous and scary and some are just trying to figure out the who am I and what do I want dilemma and they're all so courageous because they're all stepping outside of that comfort zone. They're seeking to do more and to be real and to be true to themselves and to try something new and I'm so in awe and appreciative of all of them because they inspire and motivate and push me a little in return. So this episode of the podcast is dedicated to all of my clients for being brave and daring and fulfilling their potential or doing everything in their endeavours to do so. And it's a wonderful mixed up, muddled up conversation <laughs> this one, peppered with Brene Brown quotes with someone who really thinks deeply and has taught me a lot about being authentic. So let's have a chat to Matt Condy. I am delighted to have Matthew Condy on the podcast today. Matt is the kind of eclectic psychologist that I love talking to. He's held several roles in clinical psychology, including child protection, youth and adult mental health, forensic drug and alcohol, emergency psychiatric services, perinatal and infant mental health, and refugee mental health, working overseas in refugee camps. But Matt has a huge, diverse range of interests, and one of those is sport. He has sport in his veins, and he works with athletes and as an educator here and in the United States, teaching in the areas of sports and performance psychology and leadership. And today, Matt and I are talking about identity, positive psychology, and performance and well-being, and how they intersect to help us to fulfill our potential. Welcome, Matt. Thank you very much, Owen. It's great to be here. I'm excited to have you here. We have had some mishaps with our recording, so we have already had a bit of a dry run with this conversation and this is going, This one's going to be even better. Matt, I'm interested today, as I said in our intro, you know, you do have a really diverse range of interests and background and skill set. And I'm interested to know a little more about the journey that you've taken as a psychologist to bring you to where you are and particularly how that has led to your interest in identity. Sure. So first of all, if I was going to practice what I preach for the next period, I thought I'd share with the audience just a little bit about who I am. I um, was born in a small country town in Victoria. I have a younger brother and sister, so I'm the oldest and therefore you know, labelled as the most responsible one. Me too. <laughs> I've played sports since as long as early as I can remember and it has brought me some wonderful experiences and memories and skills and I have a beautiful family and the family that I choose being my friendship group are just as special. So the reason why I shared a little bit about who I am prior to talking about what it is that I've experienced and what I do is this sense that we can sometimes forget about the who of the person within their identity and, and focus more on the what. And I guess for me, through my passion for learning um, and understanding how we do what we do, you know, I, I looked at identity and how it is impacted and influenced in notions such as labelling. I've been very thankful to have a number of opportunities to work across a number of contexts across the lifespan and identity is part overlaps in all of those areas that I've worked in previously and as I was saying I was 
curious to see how identities impacted it, but also influences notions such as labeling, rapport, relationships, so our cell relationships with ourselves, others and the world, but also how identity plays out in an individual's coping with adversities and achievements. And so this is where this notion of resilience comes in, which has gained a lot more awareness in the sector and, and in society today and looking at how we can best channel resilience to get its maximal use. Okay. And so this notion of identity, which intrigues me, can you give us an example, I suppose, of, of the sort of identity? And I, I think, you know, just listening or thinking back to the way you introduced yourself there, I introduced you as a psychologist, which is part of your identity, but you made the point that yes, you are a psychologist and you've got all of this varied experience and, and background and skills, but that's just one component of your identity. Is that the kind of thing we're talking about? Yes, very much so. And I, what I've learned to experience um, across these different contexts, and this can be tapping into this sense of labelling as well, is that if we over-invest in a particular area of our, our identity then and we don't pay attention to the other part. So I'm, I'm a firm believer and have had the strong philosophy, and I've said this to people who I've been, been working with as well, is that you can't be effective in your role if you're not being effective for yourself. And your role is an antidote or a pathway to who you are because you're performing it. There's an element of performance in that role. And we're always, we're always performing whatever role that we're in. And so, for example, if we overinvest or we become too consumed in an aspect of, of what we do or it defines who we are, our worth, our position in the world and how we are seen in relationships, then that can be quite damaging to the impact of how we cope with adversity from the outside world. Okay, so let's have a look at a few different examples of this. If I am, I guess I'm just thinking about the types of roles that I, you know, as, as you've been talking about identity, I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. So I, part of my identity, I'm a psychologist. So I think of myself as a psychologist, but I'm also a parent. And more specifically within that, I'm a mother. And these are all parts of the identity, I suppose, that makes me up. I'm a partner. I'm a member of our community. I am a mother at my children's school. I am, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And these are all, I suppose, almost in a sense, kind of roles that we play, maybe. That's kind of the idea that's forming in my mind that I have to, and it's not that you're not being authentic in those roles, it's just that you do, you tweak your behaviour. I suppose you tweak your language a little bit. I'm certainly not the same, I don't behave in entirely the same way when I am at home with my children as I would if I was meeting a corporate client in a senior role for the first time. You know, they, they're quite sort of different. Mm -hmm. So we've got a whole lot of different identities that we maintain and you're saying that sometimes they can be helpful maybe sometimes they're not always helpful but we also need to look at who the whole person is or perhaps who the person is underneath is that right yes very much so and it, it is a huge question that can't be answered in a straightforward programmed way is because that's just the uniqueness that is human behavior and, and human personality. It's a big question. Who am I? And one of the things that ties into what you were talking about that I 
referred to also or considered on in the past is the importance of values, of what is important to me that can be consistent across those different roles and it translates in the language across those different roles. So if you have you know, a particular strong value set around respect, well, then that, that respect will be communicated differently regardless of whether we're in the role of a parent, we're in the role of a psychologist, we're in the role of athlete, whatever it might be. So as long as you know, we have those foundations of values, that can be the scaffold to how we present our role in, in the social world. Okay, so that's more the core kind of, and, and I do a lot of values. And when you were saying that, actually, it reminded me of one of the exercises that I do with a lot of clients is around, um, and I think it was Joe Mitchell, who's been a previous podcast guest that I learned this from, and this idea of a six-word story. So we have this little phrase or a personal kind of story statement about who we are or, or what our purpose is, and mine is to help others live, learn, and flourish. And I'm able to apply that I think I certainly I aspire to apply that, whether I do or not, I don't know, it's for others to say, across all the different domains. So in that same way of those core values. So I help others live, learn and flourish as a parent. I try to help others live, learn and flourish as a podcaster. I try to help others live, learn and flourish as a consultant or as a you know, when I'm delivering workshops or even just as a friend, I suppose, yeah. or in a partner, it's part of that's core to me as part of my identity, but it translates across all the different domains. Yes, very much. And if you've got an awareness and a motivation uh, and an enthusiasm to explore those, those core things that are important to you, then you're going to have that, that growth uh, mindset which we know from the literature has multiple benefits. Mm. Let's take a step because there's lots of exciting things I'd like to talk to you about that and I'm going to do that in a moment. Let's take a step back to where this notion of identity can be unhelpful in some areas. Can you give us an example of how it might not be helpful because I'm interested in this connection to resilience? Sure. So one of the things that I've uh, developed a greater appreciation for during my career is this sense that we're having more access to and, and more awareness around mental health, wellness and illness. And I think we're starting to have the, an understanding of differentiating the three. What has also come or also raised, you know, as a potential consequence is this sense of potentially over-diagnosing and, and misinterpreting mental health for mental illness and mental wellness for, for poor mental health. And so, you know, we know at the clinical end we have particular disorders that impact on characterological presentations such as identity and, and fixed personality traits, et cetera. And, and you look at those clinical populations and, and the amount of adaptive resilience that is expressed. So essentially we are all resilient. If we're not resilient, if we're not able to cope, the, the consequence is that we die and mm. that we've got adaptive resilience and maladaptive resilience. And so, and this comes back down to the self-fulfilling that having a ident- particular part of identity has is that if we're over-pathologising, that can self-fulfil or self-sabotage or even re- reinforce that self-deprecation to even fix that identity even more. 
I'm unwell, I'm not going to get better, these labels that we ascribe to and that becomes all-consuming to who they are based on the environment in which they're in. So an example that I uh, was thinking about was this sense of bullying, for, as an example. Sometimes we, if a child is reported to being bullied, a parent's natural and normal response is to jump in and suffocate that vulnerability and take that distress away because it is a normal human reaction. It is a normal human emotion to to take that stress away and jump straight into that problem solving, which can be helpful, although it may not necessarily create the space for that child to stop, have a conversation in which that's an opportunity for connection between parent and child, unpack and learn which gives the child a sense of competence and efficacy about what can be done differently. Now, I'm not saying vilification is okay on any level, but if we jump straight into that labelling and we don't take the time to explore and give the person or the individual an opportunity to learn, then that label can be self-fulfilling later on down the track. Does that make sense? Yeah, so even the identification of a behaviour as bullying perhaps, this is what you're saying, that if a child is suddenly told you're being bullied and therefore part of their identity might be I am the bullied child or I am someone who is bullied by others and that we kind of go down that path and I think this is where, and I find language fascinating, but I think that's where using that language does it automatically kind of shut down some of those opportunities for exploration, for discussion, for alternatives by virtue of using that language and then that child taking on some of that identity. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yeah, very much. And it's certainly transferable across all different kinds of contexts, both in non-formal relational contexts, but also the performance-based context, whether it be sport, whether it be organisational and leadership. We jump into that problem-solving space, which can be quite helpful. And at the same time, we can ascribe language when it's not necessarily the most appropriate language to be using at that time and perhaps a different Mm. approach might be taken and this is where we're hearing terms such as well-being self-care resilience attaching the word resilient to something doesn't make you resilient (laughs) Um, and what I've been reflecting on is we know and we've been taught that self-esteem and self-worth is strong is a strong proponent of identity and is a key, one of the key factors to resilience. And I've been reading some research recently and appreciating what you've been posting on LinkedIn, Alan, around self-compassion and understanding the difference between self-esteem and self-compassion. Now, socially, two examples that we've been socially conditioned to, one being when we first meet people, we say, hello, how are you, what do you do? As, mm-hmm. as a social nicety. It can be seen as confronting or intruding as if we're asking, who are you, as opposed to what you do. So it's that social thing. The other aspect that we may have been socially conditioned to is around this sense of being humble and being compassionate to ourselves. So, you know, self-esteem on the one hand is a judgment about who you are as a person and as a value. So in psychology, we talk about people having you know, high self-esteem, low self-esteem, unhealthy, healthy, good, bad, their judgments. 
and they're contingent on rewards from the environment and relationships. My worth is defined by how you feed back and reinforce what I do well or what I don't do well. Whereas self-compassion, it's not evaluative, it's not contingent and it's unconditional and it's potentially more static across time. And within self-compassion, there's this notion of self-talk, the narrative that we have of ourselves and how we describe and define ourselves. So if we're highly self-critical, then that's going to have an impact on our self-worth and we know that. And regardless of what context, whether it be attachment, whether it be performance, whether it be organisational education, self-talk and the mindset that we have has an impact on our feelings and our behaviours. But when it comes to self-compassion, where it's still a little bit foreign for us because it's that sense that we are contingent on on other things to define our worth. Mm. So it's a different way of thinking, I suppose. It is. The self-compassion piece. It's going to take time to understand that I've said previously to when working um, with adolescents is, you know, be the best friend that you are to your best friend to yourself. And it sounds quite foreign. Mm. And there's a couple of couple of myths that need to be dispelled here. Is one, self-compassion is not self-pity or arrogance. Now, if we're to look at self-compassion across the bell curve, like at its clinical pathological end, self-pity might look at, you know, it might be related to a clinical side in terms of potentially related to mood disorders or the like. But on the other end, if it's seen as arrogance, it's seen as more personality-driven example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Self-compassion. The narcissistic end. <laughs> yeah. Self-compassion is part of that well-being, part of who we are. And the two ends of those pendulums are unhealthy. But what we also need to consider is that we need self-compassion in terms of that wellness and that holistic well-being for who we are. Mm. And it sits, um, in, sits in the centre, doesn't it, the, the kind of healthy self-compassion that we talk about, you know, people needing to. And I, I love what you said about talking to adolescents about being the best friends because I often use that as well, especially talking to women is using the sort of language with yourself that you would with a friend or, you know, if a friend presented to you with this challenge that they're facing, you know, maybe they can't manage to get everything done or they're, they're not getting on top of their tasks or they're tired and how would you speak to them where you'd say, oh, you poor thing, you know, perhaps you need a good night's sleep, who can you ask for help, everybody struggles, you're not alone in this. Whereas inwardly we tend to say, tell ourselves things like, get your act together, why can't you manage to do this, why are you so tired, why aren't you staying on top of your tasks, why, you know, we are so harsh towards ourselves in a way that we would never be, we'd never even contemplate being towards somebody else. And I think that for me depicts this notion of self-compassion that we need to speak to ourselves as we would expect a friend to speak to us, us or we indeed would speak to a friend. And that's exactly right. And then when we have, when we tie in those values around respect, as an example, if we can tie that into our notion of self-compassion, then, then that also can be helpful as well. I'm going to refer to Brene Brown and a couple of pieces. Of your life. Lots of my podcast best refer to Brene. I have a a large and and deep amount of respect for her philosophy and and her work. And she talks about if you can't show self-compassion, then how are you supposed to show compassion for those who you're working with? And 
you think about those who work in the area of mental health, thinking about why they got it into mental health in the first place, like the why did I want to become a psychologist was to help people with that compassionate side. And, and so how can we keep ourselves accountable whilst continuing to invest to make other people the best versions of themselves? One of the things that I've reflected on also over time is giving ourselves permission to be self-compassionate, but also recognising that self-compassion is scaffolded by accountability. And that's probably one thing that we haven't talked about so much in psychology or in a performance context is this sense of accountability. What I need to do to hold myself accountable based on the pathway that I'm going and the values that I want to live by. So these values, just going back to the notion of identity and the fact that we hold all these different identities, what occurred to me when you were speaking earlier was that the use of language and how it can be helpful or unhelpful. So if I am somebody who perhaps thinks that I'm not coping all that well and people perhaps have recognised this, you know, maybe colleagues or friends or family have recognised this and they've said, oh, look, I'm, I'm a bit worried that you're not travelling so well. They've maybe mentioned the word depression and they've suggested that I go and see somebody, go and see a psychologist or my GP. And automatically in my mind I think, no, I can't do that. That's not me. I'm not a depressed person. Yeah. So that sort of conversation that we're having with ourselves and where that may be unhelpful, I'm wondering whether that's something that does in fact stop people from seeking the assistance that they need and whether we need to I don't know, like you said earlier, this is complex stuff. So it's not like we can quickly just change the language and get everybody to kind of turn around and think about it differently. But I think it's an important conversation to have, you know, in terms of help seeking behavior, you know, whether or not the language that we use and this labeling and diagnosis is helping us. You know, we talked about the bullied child, but are you the depressed person who needs to go and see a psychologist? Or are you the athlete who then almost inwardly feels that you're one-dimensional because that is how everybody perceives you. This is all you are. This is what you do, which obviously then has implications for transition to other careers, et cetera, et cetera. Is that the sort of thing that we're talking about? Yeah, and the thing that may underpin any of these emotional experiences that that you're referring to is this sense of vulnerability and Mm humans and and Brené talks a lot about vulnerability in her work feeling sad is a vulnerable emotion and we know that emotions can cause discomfort and pain and and suffering in its pervasive form but emotions on the other hand can also be positive and it just so happens that you know depending on other elements such as our self-talk um, such as our internal capabilities our our previous skills and, and strengths that we drew to, to mitigate that will depend on how, you know, how severe that particular presentation or, or problem is. But some of the things that might impact on the help-seeking behaviour that you're referring to is if someone is, say, depressed or experiencing that, that low mood for a period of time, that's an incredibly vulnerable emotion to experience. Mm. And so what we 
what Brené talks about and what we've seen in addiction research and, and trauma response and trauma coping is that we numb. We numb these emotions and in doing so, we numb the vulnerability. So it's almost like our emotional factory goes, I don't want to experience fear, I don't want to experience shame, I don't want to experience guilt, and it just goes click, 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 and we switch off those emotions through numbing. The challenge with that is that we're not machines. We can't just switch off particular subsets of our emotional factory. So when we shut up somewhere else. Yeah, when we shut down these emotions, we also shut down joy, shut down happiness, shut down excitement, shut down optimism, shut down hope. And so, again, because we're trying, understandably trying to numb these emotions that are painful and discomforting for us, to think what's the point in going and seeking us to a psychologist, it's hopeless, and then the lack of mm. that might be contributing to the lack of help-seeking behaviour because we've just shut down and numbed all emotional experiences on the mm. back of that vulnerability. And then from a language and identity point of view, I'm thinking that if we're shutting that down and no longer acknowledging those parts, then we're no longer acknowledging that, you know, whilst I might be a sad person or I'm a person who's struggling right now and that's the identity we have, I'm no longer acknowledging that I'm a person who is happy at times or a person who is joyful or is in a person who is excited about the possibilities in in some area it does we close down those ways of thinking about ourselves that makes us an incomplete person and obviously you know contributes to more suffering rather than than helping to kind of move us into a better space that's exactly right and and with that i wonder whether the moments of joy and those positive moments that we have amongst that really stressful struggling crappy time goes unnoticed and minimized because of this all-consuming other side that we're focusing on. And Mm. this sort of might segue nicely into this notion of fun. You can still have fun amongst a really stressful, high-intense situation. Mm. And for some reason, and it's just it's my impression that it's a concept that fun is only seen that only children are allowed to experience. (laughs) Um, And if you're seen having fun, you you may be perceived as not taking it seriously or not caring or not being the best version of yourself in that role. And, in fact, in some contexts it can be seen as disrespectful or invalidating to experience positive emotions in the context of serious, painful or negative experiences. Mm, mm. So again, Those shoulds and shouldn'ts, isn't it? You know, yeah. I, I shouldn't be enjoying this experience because it's supposed to be serious or difficult or I shouldn't be having fun now because I'm supposed to be grieving or you know all of that conflict that that creates inside someone and and you're right that does connect to who we are you know I am a person who is experiencing grief therefore I should behave in these certain ways I'm not allowed to have a spark of joy have a spark of fun then I feel guilty about that and it, it creates a horrible cycle Yes, and again, if we don't have that emotional attunement or awareness or or language to understand what our processes are, our emotions are going to take us for a ride. So if we are to put our productivity hats on or, or motivation or engagement within a professional context, if we shut down these emotions that help us thrive and help us grow and help us learn because we're focusing on the negative, we 
are shutting down our enthusiasm, our influence, our confidence, our satisfaction and our authority. And then I would strongly argue that, you know, those elements are related to having fun and I would argue that, that you care more if that's the case. Mm. And it's an anecdotal observation that I've noted um, across contexts, um, whether it be trauma-related work, forensic, whatever it might be, this notion of, say, for example, within a sporting context, the higher you go in terms of your performance level, the less fun you're supposed to have because it all, be, so mm-hmm. the focus of your purpose for engaging in that is shifted potentially. So Amanda Vysak from the George Washington University um, done some amazing work around this and focused on youth soccer players, coaches and their parents um, around this notion of fun because, again, the higher you go, and it's whether it be sport, whether it be organisational, the fun word almost becomes the F word <laughs> and that it's true <laughs> and it's not supposed to be, you know, experienced because it's not saying that you're taking things seriously or, or things like that. Visex research found 81 independent things that make participating in team sports fun for kids, 81 determinants within 11 subdomains. The number one reason for making things participating in long-term fun is getting compliments from the coach. Now, within a self-determination theory and positive psych perspective, that sense of relatedness, we want that connection. We want to hear Mm. that that sense that we're, that we're doing a good job, that we're learning things. The number two factor was playing well during a game. Now, again, if we're to tie into self-determination theory, this is a sense of competence and mastery. Mm-hmm. Again, something that we're driven to do. And then mm-hmm. the third one was the end-of-season parties <laughs> um, and, and get-togethers. Um, fun. Yeah, fun, that it's not just about what we do on a pitch or a court or a field together, but it's what we do off as well in a different context. Mm. Winning, mm. this notion of winning came in at number 30. Hmm. And so this is with children specifically? This is with youth soccer players. Youth soccer players. Okay, so not necessarily little kids either. These are probably older teens or maybe even early 20s perhaps. Yeah, and what we can appreciate that Adolesc- this time of adolescence is huge around identity. It's about, you know, sh- shaping and forming this sense of self um, and uh, how we make sense of ourselves in the social world. So I found these findings quite fascinating. Mm. And when we have fun, we tend to celebrate. We tend to um, recognise the accomplishments, it, particularly in a work structure now, this sense of organisations feeling like they have to withhold recognition and too much of it equals self-entitlement or too little of it is seen as invalidating mm-hmm. because we're taught to be humble and contain our success, what I was mentioning earlier. And so when we withhold that recognition and we don't take that time to celebrate and have some fun with it, we don't get to experience those emotions that are tied to that enthusiasm, that motivation, that influence, that confidence like I'm having fun mm. talking to you right now because I feel confident in what I'm saying. Yeah, and so interesting. I was just thinking because one of the things I often say to managers 
particularly in relation to helping and supporting their staff or building good relationships with their staff. So that relatedness element is that you've got to kind of take your manager hat off because I think, and again, that idea that I'm a manager, therefore I need to behave in a certain way, I need to have certain conversations, I need to be serious or I need to be strict or things that are pretty old-fashioned, but I think a lot of it is held onto quite tightly in terms of who I think I ought to be in this role. And I always suggest, you know, let's just take that off and talk to this person like you're a human being, which comes back to that relatedness. And I think that's a really good point too about the, not just the relatedness, but then also that recognition piece that, you know, we know that people thrive when they feel that they are competent and when they're being recognised for their competence or their ability to display, you know, certain skill or capability. Interesting. And that really is starting to kind of blend with the positive psychology type work, isn't it? Very much so. And the other aspect of the recognition and celebrating accomplishments is what might be connected is this sense of gratitude and how gratitude can be an antidote to feeling joy and feeling fun and having those experiences of fun. Oh, in what way? Explain that further. When we sit back and we express and understand that sense of gratitude and being thankful for the experiences that we have, we can potentially be more attuned to that sense of relatedness and or reflect back on, I did that well, or I would like to do that differently next time. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to have it in the first place. Mm -hmm. So expanding our thinking about the circumstances that we're in and how that kind of lends to these set of positive emotions that we know are so important for our growth and our flourishing and our thriving. If you wouldn't mind, I just would like to read an excerpt from Brené's Brown's latest book called Dare to Lead, which sort of touches on a bit more. So I'll just read a bit from her. So she quotes, for the parents reading this, how many of you have stood over your child while they were sleeping and thought, oh God, I love this kid more than I knew was possible. And in the same second felt fear wash over you and pictured something horrible happening to your child. Statistically, it's about 90% of us. So why do we insist on dress rehearsing tragedy in moments of deep joy? Because joy is the most vulnerable emotion we feel. And that's saying something given that I studied fear and shame. When we feel joy, it is a place of incredible vulnerability. It's beauty and fragility and deep gratitude and impermanence all wrapped up in one experience. When we can't tolerate that level of vulnerability, joy actually becomes foreboding and we immediately move to self-protection. It's as if we grab vulnerability by the shoulders and say, you will not catch me off guard. You will not sucker punch me with the pain. I will be prepared and ready for you. So when something joyful happens, we start planning on being hurt. We start planning to deal with the fear and disappointment. Is this helpful? Of course not. We cannot plan for painful emotions. We know this for a fact. Because people who have been forced to live through these moments tell us that there is no amount of catastrophizing or planning for disaster that prepares you for them. The collateral damage of this instinct is that we squander joy when we need to build up an emotional reserve, the joy that allows us to build up resilience for when tragic things do happen. So fascinating. I mean, so insightful, (laughs) but so fascinating as well, because as soon as she described that, I went, oh my God, yes, I've done that, stood there and looked at the kids or, or anything, you know, in those circumstances and thought, 
and you do it is it's like a weird automatic self-preservation thing that kicks in that you know oh this is just so wonderful but then what would happen if that got taken away and I guess is what she's saying that we really need to try to a be aware because that's the first thing but then try not to let our brains go down that path to actually be able to say, no, I will just accept this joyful moment for what it is because I can't predict what will happen. Is that kind of what she's getting at? Yeah, and additionally to, to that, the, the sense of leaning into the discomfort on both sides of the emotion and that leaning into that vulnerability. And, and she talks a lot uh, a bit further down in her book around taking the armour off because the armour has been very protective for us in the context of hurt, pain, suffering, trauma, mm. distress. Mm. And mm. so to de-armour and be fully seen wholeheartedly is this sense of understanding and developing respect and awareness and authenticity for those other emotions such as joy and fun, I would argue. Mm. Yeah, and just accepting it for what it is without having to go down that mental path. And I think that is such a good point about vulnerability, especially, I mean, I've never felt as vulnerable in my life as I have since becoming a parent, because suddenly you realize that something so important can be taken so quickly away from you. And maybe, I don't know, I mean, that's, that's, it would be interesting now. You've got me thinking. You've got to. I'm going to have to go out now and think about all the other ways in which, because that's the most obvious one. But there's lots of other ways in which we're vulnerable to things that can change in an instant. You know, whether it's our work or our health or our mobility or our family or anything. You know, things change all the time. We can't necessarily predict what's going to happen. And, and that, that does make us vulnerable in lots of areas. And if we are always closing down and trying to stop that happening or try to protect ourselves, then we are shutting down part of who we are or part of who the opportunity is for us to be. Very much so, very much so. And that ties in, if we can think back to what we've been talking about, this notion of resilience, because if we're being vulnerable across multiple contexts in throughout multiple times of the day, we're needing to cope with that vulnerability. We're needing to respond to that possibility. Mm. And are we leaning into it or are we running away from it or are we numbing it or are we avoiding it? And so this all ties in with this notion of self-esteem but also self-compassion because if we're vulnerable and we're, we're seeking reinforcement from that social world, around, say, for example, being a parent, seeking that reinforcement from outside rather than within, then that's going to have a huge impact of our resilience in that particular area. So that relationship between vulnerability and resilience, I think, is, is a really important one for us to be mindful of, but also to be curious about moving forward. Mm, so if we were to unpack that a little bit, is what you're saying that if we don't allow that vulnerability and accept that sense of this is life and this is who we are and that it's okay to feel these things, that that is having a negative impact on our resilience. If we shut down, we're actually, we think we're protecting ourselves, but we're actually making ourselves less resilient. Potentially, potentially, yes. Because uh, Brene talks about some myths around vulnerability and one of those myths is that vulnerability is weakness. Another mm, okay. myth is that I don't do vulnerability or I can go it alone. 
talks about, you know, and you can't engineer uncertainty and discomfort out of vulnerability. I was having a conversation with a colleague in the States recently about this new technology in basketball to increase the accuracy of shots for their players and they were getting children, you know, 8, 9, 10, spending hours upon hours upon hours with this equipment. And I said, look, that's great. You know, look at technology and how far it's come to support that. You can't program the vulnerability out of the fact that an emotional experience at that very point in time could make that player miss that shot. And that's Mm -hmm. vulnerable. Yep. No computer, there's no formula, there's no algorithm, there's nothing that you you can program vulnerability at because it's a human experience. It's something that we're designed to experience. So if you're, and I have a son of about that age who plays basketball, so I can relate to this, but if you've got in their world a high-pressure game and the kid misses that all-important shot despite having done all of this very intensive practice, the resilience for that child is in knowing that that's okay, that people miss, that practice doesn't always make completely perfect, (laughs) that there's lots of other circumstances, including our emotions, that can get in the way of us performing the way we'd like to. Um, But having that sense and, and then being able to cope, you know, being able to process all of that in a moment and then be able to cope as well. And, and also to be allowed to cry, that's the other thing. You know, I love watching the little kids playing their sport and when they do cry and I so, I, I'm always slightly on edge because I always want to see how the coach is going to react. You know, does the coach give them a hug or tell them that's okay or do they try and shut that emotion down? That always is an anxious moment for me as a psychologist, mother and, you know, basketball parent. Yes, and I, I think... It ties in nicely with this self-esteem, self-compassion understanding around, you know, you miss the shot and you're evaluated based on what you did versus being self-compassionate. It's that unconditional that I do make mistakes. I'm wanting to to get better next time. So I'm going to do X, Y, and Z to ensure that happens. It's, it's not as destructive and deprecating on on the identity of who you are. I'm not a bad basketballer because I missed the shot. I'm just a human being and what's more, a 10-year-old one. (laughs) And that, you know, is such a wonderful lesson for all of us, isn't it, this idea that we'll all have expectations of who we are based on our identity and, and social expectations and the way we were raised and all of those sorts of things and that we won't always hit the mark or fulfill everything in the way that we want to because we are human and because life is messy and because that is just what it is mm-hmm. um, and that rather than beating ourselves up for it, that self-judgment piece that we need to use a bit of self-compassion and accept that this is who we are, that this is human, that this is life, that life is messy and that's okay and that is where growth comes from because that is what gives us the opportunity to say, you know what, screw this up, it happens I'll do better next time or I'll try harder next time or I'll just see what happens next time. Accountability, yeah. And yeah, then, yeah, having another go. This is one one lens or, or one framework within a very complex topic and, and some of the people 
uh, listening to this will go, yeah, I agree with this, you know, with what's being said. Some people won't agree and some people will just go, I need some more time to think about how that makes sense with my philosophy and, and, and my framework and all three are okay. And I think, you know, this is all, again, what we probably haven't touched on, which is a whole other conversation, is this sense of cultural identity and how that plays out, you know, both in a social context, like that social cultural identity, but also the organisational cultural identity that can impact on the the concepts that we've talked about so it's a fascinating Mm. area it is a fascinating area and I really enjoyed this conversation Matt I'm interested to know I mean obviously you've you've referenced Brene Brown's work so the passage that you read was from Dare to Lead is that right yes so she uh Brene's recently uh released her well I'm gonna say fourth Mm. well yes a book called Dare to Lead, Brave Work, Tough Conversation, Whole Hearts. And it's specifically driven to leadership type context. However, this notion of vulnerability can be in any form of performance context. And now I would strongly argue that we're always performing in a role at any given point in time. Mm. Um, So I think it's certainly transferable to different roles, um, not just leadership. Yeah, and I always find the notion of leadership interesting in and of itself, isn't it? Because I kind of think that, you know, certain the number of times I've had a conversation with leaders in, you know, sort of positional leaders in organisations about what their role is and how similar it might be to being a parent at home. So I think, you know, leadership as a concept, we, we're all leaders in, in fact, there's a lovely video that I might link to this in the show notes to this episode and I've forgotten the name of the guy, but he talks about the fact that we are all leaders that we will all have an opportunity to shape somebody else's direction their life you know in ways that we might not even recognize at the time because we all have an impact so the notion of leadership being much broader than just this kind of positional leadership you know you're a leader when you coach your kids basketball team you're a leader when you help organize a fundraising event at school you're a leader when you are just somebody who other people listen to, I suppose. I don't know. It's very broad. You're a leader when you hold the door open for someone who's on a wheeler. And I think, you know, that's the really privileged gift that we have as humans is that we can be a leader and it's, it is so motivating and it's so empowering and it is so exciting to have that influence, to have the privilege to have that influence in what we do. And Mm. I think as psychologists, we are in a very privileged position that we have the skills and abilities to empower others, which is a natural response for us. And it's really exciting that we're learning about these concepts such as self-compassion and allowing ourselves to be compassionate because I certainly as a psychologist throughout training, I had these expectations and this mindset around you know wanting to get it right for the good of the client and etc cetera, etc cetera. and it does take those learning journeys for us to to step back and, and 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 be more authentic in how we want to define our role as a psychologist mm, I think that's a wonderful thing that I've learned maybe only come to relatively recently is that there isn't a right way to do it you know, our profession, and this is probably the same for everyone's profession maybe, I don't know, I can only speak for what I do, but 
going into something and thinking that there is one way to do it. And of course, we are dealing with human beings who are complex and unpredictable. And whilst we have some commonalities, we're all absolutely unique individuals. And so we do need to be open to the fact that sometimes we won't know what we're doing or we'll feel like we won't know what we're doing anyway, or we won't know how to respond in a situation, or we'll be uncomfortable, or we'll be scared, or we'll be, I don't know, all those things, those emotions you were talking about. Very true. Um, Yeah, it's a learning journey. Very much so. Mm. We're talking self-compassion. So Kristen Neff, have you read Kristen Neff's stuff or seen her TED Talks? Yes. yes. At all on self-compassion? Yep. So I'll link to that in our show notes too. Kristen was one of the articles that I was reading um, recently when talking around self-compassion. Yeah, she's done wonderful work. I, I was fortunate enough to see her speak at the Happiness and Its Causes Conference in Sydney last year now. So Kristen Neff, Brené, Dare to Lead, TED Talk on Leadership. Is there other, are there other resources or things that have really struck you as being really powerful to kind of get some of these concepts across to our listeners if they're interested in learning more? I've got a few coming through my mind, but I would have to get back to you on that one. (laughs) That's okay. Totally okay. (laughs) That's part of being vulnerable. (laughs) Right. We forget things. Great example there. (laughs) Matt, thank you so much for this whole conversation. And and I know, and our listeners hopefully won't realize this because we will put it together so nicely, but Matt and I have had a series of technical problems as part of this interview. So again, this is being vulnerable and sharing. Things don't always turn out the way you want them to. Um, and technology gets in the way and human error gets in the way because I think I made a mistake in there as well by not hitting the record button perhaps. So by the time this has all been put together beautifully by our producer, Andy, it won't sound as haphazard as perhaps it's felt. So I really appreciate appreciate your patience and your tenacity <laughs> and your willingness to persevere with something that perhaps hasn't been as, as ideal as we might have liked. But I do appreciate all of that. I appreciate all of your thoughts. It is, you know, I always enjoy having a conversation with you because you are a deep thinker and there's lots and lots of interesting ideas. And I'm sure that that has translated to our audience as well. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Alan. I've had a lot of fun and despite the glitches and the the stop start, it's just given us more time to talk about what I find passionate about. So I could talk underwater about this stuff. So (laughs) it was meant to be, right? Yeah, and I think maybe that's a, a very good example of taking the positive perspective as well is that it has given us more opportunity. We've taken more time to do it as well. So there's always a positive side to every um, every challenge and now I'm losing my voice. So thank you once again and I will talk to you further. Thank you. That was clinical and sports psychologist Matthew Condy and I hope you enjoyed that thoughtful conversation as much as I did. Special thanks today go to my editor and audio producer Andy for weaving his magic to put this episode together as technology was not our friend while Matt and I were recording. Jay and I have put links to the books and TED Talks and the other resources that Matt and I discussed in this conversation, in particular Brené Brown's book, Dare to Lead, which we both highly recommend in the show notes for this episode. And as always, you can find them at potential.com.au forward slash podcast. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please let us know. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes as that's the best way to spread the word about all of our guests and the work that we're doing and they're doing to promote well-being. 
And you can also have a chat to me via email if you're interested. I love to hear from listeners. I love to hear from everyone. Email is a delight. New and interesting people to talk to. And I'm at Ellen Jackson, one word, at potential.com.au. And of course, we're on all the socials as well, where I'm equally happy to have a chat. Just search for Potential Psychology. In next week's episode, I have the first of a few conversations specific to well-being within particular professions and kicking things off, it's veterinarians. My guest is Dr. Nadine Hamilton, who is the author of a new book called Coping with Stress and Burnout as a Veterinarian. And why vets? Well, there's a couple of reasons. I've done some work recently with some of our local vets here in Ballarat on promoting positive mental health. And I was approached to help them via a referral from a wonderful colleague because unbeknownst to me at the time, vets do it really tough. In fact, in Australia, one veterinarian will complete suicide every 12 weeks. That's roughly four times the average of the general adult population in Australia. And I'm going to be talking to Nadine a little about why this is, but more importantly, we'll be talking about what those in the profession and especially those entering the profession can do to increase their well-being and really hold strong in what is a challenging profession. So that is next week on the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm looking forward to having you along for that conversation. If you know someone who is a vet or is thinking of going into vet science or is a student at the moment, suggest they have a listen in because we really do want to spread the word far and wide to be able to help people in the vet profession. I will see you next week. Have a great week.